Welcome to the Hadassah Collective. I'm your host, Claire Marinan. The Hadassah Collective podcast brings together a carefully curated selection of my most trusted and inspiring innovators from every area of the health and wellness space. I invite my guests to freely share their gifts, their wisdom, their journeys, and their diverse points of view, discussing a whole range of topics, including yogic science, present-day philosophy, integrated diet and fitness, modern mental health, non-denominational religion, and holistic lifestyle. All of this to inspire our community with accessible tools to align each individual with who they truly are created to be, to consciously evolve their lives and extend their unique divine light into the world. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing Robert Breedlove. He is a Bitcoin-focused entrepreneur, writer, and philosopher. Robert has been particularly inspired by Austrian economics and the teachings of Jordan Peterson, which have helped him reconcile his purely objective outlook on reality with its more subjective dimensions of valuation, morality, and meaning. Robert considers himself a freedom maximalist and believes he has found his life's work in the Bitcoin space as a contributor to the separation of money and state. Through his writing and media work, Robert aims to elucidate the importance of freedom and self-sovereignty across all spheres of human action. Robert is the host of the What is Money show, where he hosts discussions with other luminaries about Bitcoin, macroeconomics and philosophy. Over 300 episodes of the What Is Money show can be found on YouTube and podcast platforms. If you would like to expand your understanding of the topics introduced in today's episode, this is the perfect place to begin digging deeper. I hope you enjoy this episode. Robert Breedlove, welcome to the Hadassah Collective. Hi there. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. Amazing to have you. Amazing to have you. So, yeah, there's been a lot of water under the bridge since I last, um, since I first reached out to you and talked about having this conversation, and um, you know, talking about the real, um, the real fun- fundamentals of Bitcoin. Um, I realized that um, when I, you know, had conversations with people previously, that um, a lot of people didn't really know what Bitcoin was. A lot of people have this vibe of like this get rich quick scheme or gambling or you know really the speculative side of bitcoin so i'm really excited to have you on um to talk about the fundamentals we're really not talking about that sort of thing and i Mm. think um you know it's a really great opportunity to have that conversation so welcome why don't we start um with you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you found yourself down the bitcoin rabbit hole yeah, um, I, I'll i try to give you the short version so we can save as much time as possible to talk about Bitcoin, which is way more interesting than my own personal life. <laughs> um, I have been a curious person for as long as I can remember. I've always been a very avid reader. My, I think I have my mom to thank for that. She was very uh, encouraging, let's say, of education and self-study any question you had about the world or any problem you were dealing with, her answer was always education, you know, knowledge. Um, I, so I'd been, I started a pretty healthy reading habit when I was young. And I think that contributed a lot to just um, my exploration of these big ideas as I got older. And one of the 
big ideas I started wrestling with in my late teenage years was what is an economy? What is, you know, I was very fascinated with the stock market. You know, a lot of people seem to be fascinated by this, this mirage, this illusion, like the, you know, nothing is actually real, but it is somehow related to real companies and real goods and services. And it was very mysterious to me. I couldn't get my head around it. Um, you know, you saw people often on the news talking about the economy and financial markets, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess I had a, a bit of a predisposition toward this domain of thinking because my father was uh, an accountant and he was a very successful entrepreneur. So maybe that was part of it as well. And combined with the curiosity, my mom had helped spark in me. So I started reading. Originally, it was The Economist magazine was something I started reading pretty, pretty assiduously. And like, I guess the going into college, um, it's a really good magazine, actually. It's like very well written. It's on a wide spectrum of topics, not just economics. Mm -hmm. But in retrospect, the economics in that magazine are Keynesian, which we, we can get into later. But I basically consider that to be bullshit economics. Um, <laughs> supported by mainstream academia it is not consistent with the longer historic uh, human study of economics which is which is contained in the austrian school i didn't know any of this at the time by the way um so that was good i was reading that magazine once a week it was like getting a little book every week it really was quite a substantial magazine um and it was helping me satisfy that curiosity about the world and how it works um, you know, specifically in monetary and economic affairs. And then somehow I stumbled across the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. I don't even know how. I think I was at the same time reading another investment or economics newsletter that some friend of mine had recommended. And that book was mentioned in the newsletter and I ended up getting the book. And wow, that was definitely my... Um, plug from the matrix moment, I guess. Um, the creature from Jekyll Island is about the inception of the Federal Reserve, which is the central yeah. bank of the United States. But it goes much deeper than that. It goes into um, the history of money and banking um, and kind of a, at, a, at a scale of world history. You know, it goes actually goes into the question, what is money? It digs into that quite mm -hmm. deeply. Um, and yeah, uh, Mike, my takeaway from the book was that central banking is like the corrupt institution that dominates the planet today. And it's kind of hidden in plain sight. You know, we all use this fiat currency, but no one ever stops to think about the nature of it or the nature of the institution that promulgates it. And so I... I don't know. I was, I remember after reading that book, I bought an abridged version for many of my friends and family. Uh, the abridged version was by another author and the book was titled Dishonest Money. Hmm. I circulated this book with friends and family. I think it was like a Christmas gift I gave them and a few people read it and they came back to me and they're like, okay, yeah, it's a good book. Pretty, pretty scary stuff. Pretty dark. And they were like, so what do we do about it? And I'll never forget, like it really left that mark on me, that feeling of sort of helplessness or 
um, defeat maybe even like I, I just didn't have an answer I was like well I, I don't know I thought we would all just kind of like become aware of this this corruption that's inherent to the global marketplace and maybe we could do something about it but but indeed they were right there was no good answer there was no technological alternative you know you could instead of using government fiat money you could i guess bury gold in your backyard and try to do all your transactions and physical gold but obviously that's extremely risky and cumbersome and all all of all of those things so there just wasn't a good alternative and i more or less put that in an intellectual box and stuck it on the shelf and just walked away. Um, I ended up completing my degree in accounting and finance. I got a master's degree and I just became a dollar chasing business guy. You know, I was in public accounting for a few years. I then um, moved into finance for uh, mostly tech companies. Uh, I was a CFO for a a hospitality tech company and a healthcare technology company and um, was just kind of a dollar chasing, you know, typical young executive guy trying to climb the proverbial ladder and um, all that. Uh, and I, you know, learned a lot along the way, but was also becoming increasingly dissatisfied and aimless. Mm. So as I, as I ascended, I thought I should be happier and feeling better and, you know, more, more fulfilled, but it was like the opposite was actually happening. Um, so that was, that was interesting. And then I eventually decided that I just wanted to work for myself. Um, I guess I had, what really bothered me were the politics. You know, I felt like my job became more and more political as I, as I, again, as I ascended and I was just so tired of that. I just wanted to be able to do what I want every day. and find a way to add value to other people's lives somehow. I had no idea what I was going to do working for myself. I left a very comfortable position um, and took a big risk, you know, just kind of took the leap of faith. Uh, I had one consulting client at the time when I started my business and had no idea what I was going to do. I was just going to consult and figure it out. But in retrospect, I'm really glad I did that because it gave me the mental bandwidth to look into the world, like to see what was going on, to study more. Again, kind of maybe that was part of it. I was working so much that I did, I wasn't finding enough time to read and study. And these were things that I've been doing most of my life. So yeah. maybe that was absent. And so I felt this need to kind of go be on my own and and indeed, I got it back and I got lucky, really. I, I somewhat um, ironically, actually, that Ethereum was marketing itself as a smart contract platform. Right. And I had never, I didn't know what a smart contract was. So I was like, okay, I'm going to learn about that. And I started going down that rabbit hole. And when I found Nick Zabo's work, which was written in the late 90s on smart contracts, um, I had a, a light bulb moment that the entire finance industry was a smart contract facilitated by human beings. Um, it's an intermediate function that connects buyers and sellers or lenders and borrowers. And based on what I was learning about um, the prospect of soft, you know, software smart contracts as opposed to human facilitated smart contracts, 
it looked like a lot of that labor was about to be disrupted by this this new technology um, in the crypto, you know, quote unquote crypto space. So with that, I decided I would take another risk and start buying these assets and learning more about them and figuring out how I could work in the space. I just kind of committed myself. And when I tell the story, I always say where my money went, my mind followed. Um, I think human psychology and money are very tightly bound to say the least. And if you really want to learn something, um, I think you should buy a little bit of the thing, you know, and that applies to anything. If you want to learn how to use a, a tool or technology, well, you need to buy it. Uh, you need to have some skin in the game and that will certainly draw out the best in you to, to learn more about it. And as I went down that path, um, well, also it just so happened again, kind of lucky, fortunately, that was late 16 going into early 17. 2017 was a the infamous bull market in crypto. I think the entire market space was up 1,800% in 12 months. So throughout that process, people in my life knew I was learning about the space and they're asking me, what is this? How do I get exposure to it? Blah, blah, blah. And just sort of organically, um, I decided to take my business in the direction of running a fund, uh, running a multi-strategy, multi-crypto asset hedge fund. And that's what I did. So um, so at this point, it wasn't Bitcoin or it was Bitcoin and everything else? It was Bitcoin and everything else. And But as I wrote my monthly LP updates, my monthly investor updates, I was still going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole myself, you know? So like I'm looking at these other assets, but also still learning about Bitcoin. And my focus just kept getting more and more narrow on Bitcoin. It's like all of these other things, they're very theoretical. There's a lot of technical and execution risk. And you just, it's like venture capital, basically. Mm -hmm. But Bitcoin was something fundamentally different. Bitcoin was like this internet protocol innovation meets monetary disruption and it's not really a venture capital play it's something it's like the invention of the internet itself right it's it's something more fundamental than just a a single company play and that was coming out in my writing and then i was also lucky again um when the i was going down the bitcoin rabbit hole as aggressively as i could the book by Safedina Moose, The Bitcoin Standard, came out in April 2018. And I got it like uh, immediately, basically, when it came out. And I read it in a weekend. So I was like one of the first people to just read the whole book. Amazing. And that's when things clicked for me. I was like, oh, wow. So all of a sudden, the, the creature from Jekyll Island came off the intellectual shelf, came out of the box. Bitcoin, Austrian economics, like all the pieces were connected. I was like, oh, Bitcoin is the thing that disrupts gold, which disrupts central banking, which frees the world. I was like, oh my goodness, this is the thing. And at that point, uh, basically became what most outsiders today would call a Bitcoin maximalist. Although I refer to myself as a freedom maximalist because I think Bitcoin is a means to an end. And for me, that end is human freedom and flourishing. And... Um, 
That's it. I continued to operate those funds. Um, we had two active funds for almost four years, three and a half years. And then my last realization was I was spending all my blood, sweat, and tears trying to outperform Bitcoin. That was our benchmark net of fees, right? We're a two and 20 hedge fund. So we had to outperform Bitcoin plus pay our fees to to meet our benchmark. So very high bar to say the least. It's like the best performing asset in the world and you're trying to outperform it. And my realization was, oh, and also like the writing I had been doing was becoming popular. I was writing these long form essays. I was getting inviting, uh, invited on podcasts to talk about them. The talking was becoming popular and the market was just telling me like more, more reading, more writing, more talking, like we want to hear more out of you. Yeah. And so, with that feedback, I just decided I would get out of the hedge fund business, which I was not particularly enjoying. And I would just hold, you know, my savings in Bitcoin versus trying to outperform this thing. And then I would free myself up totally to do what I want to do, which was read, write and talk. Um, and then so no, you know, that decision was mid 2020. And by November, 2020, I had launched the What Is Money show, which is the podcast I've been operating ever since. Yeah. Um, and we basically are focused on trying to, I'm trying to learn as much as I can. Mm -hmm. And then the ulterior motive is to try and orange pill the world. So that's mm -hmm. what we're doing. Wonderful. Wonderful. And um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. I don't think it's a, an uncommon story, even people that in um, are probably even listening to this, like, you, you know, don't really see or can differentiate Bitcoin from the rest of crypto. And, um, you know, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with, you know, certain ideas that are happening in the rest of crypto. There are, there are interesting things that are happening, interesting ideas, but really on a fundamental level, Bitcoin is entirely different. We're talking about the way I see it is that the, the remainder of crypto is, is somewhat replicating the system the existing system that we already yeah. have like everything right. else is sort of a trade you're you're trying to accumulate um or harvest more us dollars from from that trade from that transaction mm -hmm. whereas bitcoin is really um giving an alternative to um to the system the entire system right. so yeah. um i think it's a great um place to start i also love you know um thomas Strollight says at the beginning of his um book what why bitcoin he says that you know bitcoin was not created so that some people could get rich quick it was created to preserve the integrity of money and so i feel that that sort of sets the tone of like how what we'll lean into um for the remainder of this conversation and i think the best place to probably start is the question that you have spent hours dedicated to asking and attempting to answer. And that is, what is money according to Robert Breedlove? <laughs> well, <laughs> so funny for the guy that runs the show by the name, what is money? I never know what answer to give because I have found, discovered so many answers as a result of my own study and my conversations with guests. Um, but I will try to keep it simple. And I'll, I, as we go on in our conversation, other answers tend to come up that are relevant to the discussion. Sure. Um, and I'll share a new one today too, actually. But first of all, the economic 
definition of money, the Austrian economic definition of money is a universal medium of exchange. So what does this mean? This means that in any group of humans where goods are being traded, all right, there are transactions occurring, some asset in that nexus of trade necessarily becomes the most tradable thing, the most widely accepted thing in trade. And quite simply, that is money. It's whatever asset is most marketable. This is also another answer for the question is money is the most marketable good. And that means specifically that, that you can sell it onto the market with the least loss in price and with the widest possible set of trading partners. Um, and that gives that gives you a lot of advantages, really, because rather than trying to trade the thing that you produce, right? Like maybe you produce some obscure good like telescopes, right? That's not widely demanded. You don't need to go through this long chain of transactions to get, maybe you want oranges, right? You don't need to trade the telescopes to the guy that wants seashells, to the guy that wants pillows, to the guy that takes pillows for oranges. You just trade it for the most marketable good or the most liquid asset, and you trade that asset directly for the thing that you want. So it's this emergent property of free exchange, um, and it's happened everywhere. It's everywhere humans have ever conducted trade. It's like how, if you think about it, it's very obvious in that way. It's like, if humans are trading goods, there has to be a good that's most tradable. There's also a good that's least tradable, right? And everything between exhibits degrees of moneyness, actually. So it's, there's a small liquidity premium associated with anything that that is held with the intention of trading it in the future rather than using it for consumption or investment. And so that monetary premium, everything that's held for that reason has a little bit of moneyness to it, but the thing that is most tradable has the most monetary premium, you could say. So... That's it. It's a socially, socioeconomically emergent phenomenon. It is not a government decree. It's not a government instrument. Um, it's something more like the calendar. You know, calendars emerge through. Uh, it's a social construct, right? The calendar doesn't exist anywhere. It's not this tangible thing. It's this agreement that we have collectively that's useful for coordinating our interactions in time and space. And money is is very similar. Um, so yeah, that's a good question. Good answer. I think like from the economic standpoint, um, that hopefully is simple enough to understand. I'm yeah. kind of giving you the very swift version here. If you wanted the detailed version, you could read a book titled on the origins of money written by Carl Minger. It's written in a slightly esoteric form of English, but it's a short book. It's a great read. And he he details out that process that I just attempted to articulate. Um, a new answer I would like to give you, though, for the question, what is money? And this is one I discovered through my own personal experience. Um, we just released an episode, actually, that was a compilation of my past guest. Um, of me asking them that question and the different answers that I received back and some of the, the banter related to it. Mm -hmm. uh, my editor did a great job of slicing this together. I think it's one of our, our better episodes. Um, and we've, we've released two of them so far. We'll have more to come. 
But asking that question, you know, one of the things people say about money often is that it's, again, the medium of exchange. So it's it's not wealth, right? Wealth would be the actual goods and services and capital in a marketplace. So another way money is often described is that it is a reflection of wealth, right? It's like something that can be used to acquire these things, mm-hmm. but it is not the things themselves. So you Although we often say someone who has a lot of money is wealthy, that's not technically correct if they just have a lot of money, right? If they have a lot of assets, then sure, that that means they're wealthy. But if you just have a lot of money, you don't really have wealth. You just have this call option, if you will, to acquire wealth from others. Mm-hmm. And um, so money has this reflective... The other thing money does is it reflects back to us the consequences of human action. So as things are being traded in the marketplace, we use money as a language in which to express prices. So it, it, it's, it's compressing data, right? When you, the car is $40,000, that's much easier to say than, um, the car is one eleventh of a four hundred and forty thousand dollar house. You know, you, mm-hmm. everything that's trading, the what uh, this is what Mises calls exchange ratios. So if it takes eleven of those cars to buy one of those houses, we could say the car cost one eleventh of the house, or we could say the house cost eleven cars. And you could do that with any two pairs of trading commodities in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's very unwieldy and confusing. So what do we do? We compress all that data into the language of value we call money. Mm-hmm. So again, money has this reflective kind of quality that it's reflecting back to us information um, about that how these assets are trading on the market, how much other people value them. Yeah. And so I'm saying this to try, and this is the first time I've ever given this answer, so forgive the confusion, but... Um, one of the things I noticed in that compilation episode was that people's answer about the question, what is money, somehow um, told, or it, it seemed to me to tell, to be telling of their character. Mm. And so it was almost like it was a reflection of the personal psychology of the person answering the question in a way. And I, I just noticed this and I thought it was very interesting. I, I could like give you an example. So, um, you know, Michael Saylor was my first guest on the show. Mm. He did this incredible, like it's still our most popular series ever. The yeah, guy is he, yeah. he's brilliant. He's eloquent. He's a super successful billionaire entrepreneur. He's, you know, he's, he's running his own public company that he himself founded 30 years ago probably one of the longest lived public CEOs on earth. Um, I, I don't think there's anyone that's heard him speak for five minutes that hasn't been blown away. Like he's just a very impressively intelligent, um, powerful uh, man with presence. Like he's a natural leader, like just very impressive human. Well, when he talks about money, he talks about it as being like the greatest form of energy humans have ever channeled or like, the power of all powers. And so, and I didn't know this again until reflecting upon it. I'm like, oh, that 
that's kind of a reflection of his perspective, maybe because that's how he sees the world. Mm. And that's the, that's the domain he competes with. And it's like this domain of, of energy and power. And then you could look at my second guest, equally brilliant man, very eloquent, uh, very successful entrepreneur, very different though, from Mr. Sailor, like super humble, like not that Sailor's not humble, but he's just very low key, very unassuming, uh, just loving, sweet man. And when he answers the question, what is money? You know, he'll give you kind of the proper economic response. And then he'll say, but money ultimately doesn't really matter. You know, it's about love. It's about relationships. It's about this. And so it just struck me as I was watching this compilation episode that I'm like, oh my goodness, I think I've tapped into kind of a unique question here that people are holding up a mirror to their own psychology as they try and answer the question. And, um, I don't know, maybe that's just me overly, <laughs> overly, uh, analyzing my own show. Um, that's fascinating. About, it reminds me of this quote that I'll paraphrase. Um, and I don't know who said it, so please forgive me, but they said that every man's observation of the world is simultaneously a confession of character. And it, this seemed like one of those questions that was really good at calling out an individual's observations of the world and simultaneously revealing things about their character that they may or may not um, intended, may or may not have intended to disclose. Yeah, that's that's so fascinating. That's so fascinating. And it, it's interesting that you mentioned that with Michael Salix. I remember listening to that episode and um i think he says like it's you know um money is the greatest um force that we can channel in the universe and i was like if i ever meet him i'm gonna challenge him on that because i also think i'm like you know i think love is the more powerful force that we can channel and mm. you know obviously money is important but it's um yeah i was like i'm gonna channel challenge him on that yeah. so funny that you you picked up on that particular thing and jeff booth would agree with you i think and yeah but it's like it's it's the context of the question right it's totally i think sailor's speaking about it through an engineering lens versus if you talk to a guy like jeff booth or perhaps even yourself you're taking like this the completely broadest philosophical scope on it whereas sailor's very focused on these the pragmatic aspects of things and that's a very useful way to look at the world obviously right he's been unbelievably successful so again it's kind of it's telling you something about the person answering it you know like how they're looking at the world and i don't know that's just i think that's very interesting i find that really interesting as well and i think um i mean in fairness to him he is also on a show called what is money so oh yes he's thinking in that he's thinking in that direction so yes for yes. sure so why don't we dive into, um, you know, briefly about some of the themes that are kind of covered in the creature from Jekyll Island and um, talk about the um, establishment of central banking, a fiat currency, and obviously also gold as um, gold as money and how that all sort of came, the history of that, a really brief history. I know I'm putting you on the spot to kind of condense so much into into one question. 
Yeah, well, I'll do my best. And I guess it makes sense to start with gold, actually. So, mm-hmm. um, again, money is the most marketable good. Um, that That's money conceptually, right? Like money has taken many different forms across history in many different places at many different times based on the technological realities of the society that's selecting money, right? It's, today, we use government paper and electronic representations of government paper. Well, that wasn't an option a thousand years ago or 500 years ago, right? They used things like coinage or, um, you know, in ancient Rome, salt was used at one point, right? That's where we get words like salary. Um there's the word pecuniary, which means like having to do with money, but it comes from the word pecun, which means cow, right? Cows were money for a long time. Um, Glass beads were used in Western Africa. You know, rye stones were used in the Yap Islands, uh, as is mentioned in the the book, The Bitcoin Standard. Uh, cigarettes are kind of this common example that emerge naturally in prison settings or or prisoner of war settings. And so the point is that although money is always conceptually the same thing, its specific instantiation changes based on circumstances, technologies, etc. And so one of the most useful ways to view money, in my opinion, is by looking at the desired properties of money across time. So like what, when humans choose a tool for a job, you're not actually looking for the specific tool necessarily. You're looking for the services that it can render to you. So what I mean by that, like if you want to buy an automobile, you might really think you want the Tesla or you want the the Corvette or whatever your preference is. But what you really want is to be able to travel fast, right? To be able to have a status symbol to impress your friends or maybe even people you don't know. Or maybe you want to... uh signal your 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 proclivity for ecological preservation right you want to drive the tesla or the ford prius or whatever to say that you know i care about the environment you're looking for these services you're looking for these outcomes right it's not the specific asset it's humans value services not goods which is kind of a a tricky thing but if you think about it it's it's how it works right even the table I'm using right now, it's I don't, it's not about this table per se. It's about that it provides me a surface to rest my things on and conduct a podcast and yeah. and write, etc. So when you look at money, I think the useful way is that you're not looking for it's not that humans value any specific asset that has been used as money. The question really bottoms out and what are the services that human beings seek from money? And I decompose the answer to that question into five parts. Um, And I, you know, I won't go into detail here because I've done this on several shows before. If you'd like me to, I can later, but I'll just mention them here and then move forward. But let me know and we can come back to it. 
humans seek five services from money, mm-hmm. no matter what tool they're using for the job. And they want something, they want a tool of money that is divisible. They want a money that is durable. They want a money that is portable. They want a money that is recognizable. And they want a money that is scarce. Mm-hmm. And so, as people are trading and competing with one another, everyone's experimenting with different tools for the job, right? You might choose to store your savings in gold. I might choose to store my savings in silver. And then over time, you know, we discover ultimately that, well, it turns out gold is more scarce than silver. It's harder to increase the supply of gold than it is silver. Mm-hmm. So if you put your your economic wealth or your purchasing power in silver, it's going to dissipate more quickly than if you had put it into gold. So there's like, there are real consequences to the tool that you select, right? It's not just this arbitrary subjective thing. I mean, the choice is subjective. You choose whatever you want as money. But if you choose bananas and you put a bunch of bananas in your safe, well, they're going to rot and then you're not going to have any purchasing power left. Um, So... As people experimented with many different forms of money over time, um, ultimately, like in the 1800s, when the world commercial landscape became wired together by telecommunication channels, Mm -hmm. the world had effectively settled on a gold standard by that point. So gold has been used as money for like five to 7,000 years, but not everywhere, not all the time. You know, it was in different places at different times. Um, but again, when the world was interconnected and ideas flowed somewhat freely, the entire world settled on gold as money. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's because basically, uh, of all the tools available to be money, monetary metals were the most divisible, most durable, most recognizable, and most portable tools available. And of the monetary metals, gold was the most scarce. So therefore, gold wins. Gold becomes money, right, on the free market. And that was useful, right? It's, it's, the other thing about money is that it really tends toward one, one solution. It's like a winner-take-all marketplace. Uh, we see that with the dominance of the U.S. dollar today. We see that with gold still as kind of the dominant monetary metal. Um, we also see that with Bitcoin, right? It's just totally dominated all the other uh, competing crypto assets. And the reason for that is the function of money is really singular, right? As we said earlier, it's just the medium of exchange. The monetary network that has the most trading partners, the most network effects, right? The deepest liquidity that's always going to be favored. If I'm a new entrant coming into the marketplace, it's like, do I want to use the monetary network that has 10 participants or do I want to use the one that has 10,000? Like it's to my advantage to use the one that has 10,000. And it's also to the advantage of all those network participants to stay in that network. So it's this, this centripetal kind of network effect that tends toward one solution. It's a winner take all marketplace. And so, um, Gold won. Basically, gold became money. It, it was the winner that took all. And um, and that was good for a while. You know, it, it worked. It, it was, uh, well, 
this this is actually another useful answer for where we'll go next. Mm-hmm. Another useful answer for the answer answer to the question, what is money, is that money is a device for expressing value across space and across time. So in gold, we had discovered something that was really good at holding value or expressing value across time because its supply was scarce. It only increased by about one and a half to 2% per year historically. Um, you know, it's effectively indestructible. It's non does not corrode. Uh, so it's very durable. Um, it's recognizable, right? It's this shiny gold brick and you could also test it. This is where we get actually get the term sound money that if you drop a gold coin from a certain height, it makes a very particular sound. Um, and that, that's a way to indicate the authenticity of the gold. It's kind of a, a rule of thumb on how to test it. And so money was, it fulfilled these properties most effectively. But one area that it lacked is portability. It's actually gold is not that great at expressing value across space. Although you could do it, right? You can move gold across space. You know, you can put it on a wagon or a boat or a plane. You can, it can be moved. But the process is risky. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're subject to getting hijacked or attacked or having the gold seized at any point. Because uh, it's such a target, right? There's so much economic wealth stored in one asset. It, it's a it's a target for for theft. Obviously, you have to secure it, right? So that's an expensive process to transport plus secure the gold. And gold's also very heavy. So if you're doing a very large transaction, I mean, you're talking about a lot of equipment, a lot of time, a lot of security. And a lot of risk, right? Just to move the stuff across space. So suffice it to say that as good as gold was at holding value over time, it was much less sufficient at moving value across space. So what did we do? Um, Humans being human, we put our heads together and we innovated a solution. And the solution was quite simple. We'll just put all the gold in one place, right? Or or places, we'll put it with custodians. These were originally called money warehouses. Mm-hmm. And those money warehouses would issue a paper certificate, um, an IOU, if you will, right? Like you gave me 100 ounces of gold, here's an IOU that says, I owe you 100 ounces of gold. Mm-hmm. This is a warehouse receipt. And people were now free to trade these pieces of paper as if they were gold as if because they were right you could take it to the to the warehouse which would become the bank this is the precursor to the bank you could take this warehouse receipt or what would later be called this bank note to the bank and you could redeem the money right at any time so what we had done here was we had taken layer one which was gold And we built a layer two application on top of it called currency or banknotes or warehouse receipts, depending on which era you're in. And that was an augmentation to the portability of gold such that we could overcome this technical flaw. And 
we could use gold as an effective transactional medium, right? Now it's much, it's much easier to move paper around and much, much easier once that paper became represented electronically, right? When we had things like the telegraph, you know, banks could just telegraph between themselves and change ledger entries. And they, they didn't actually have to ship the gold. They would ship it and settle periodically, but they could just change ledger entries. So we kind of digitized gold in this way or informationalized it. And it made it much faster, um, much more portable, basically. So in that composite technology called a gold-backed currency, we solved the problem, right? We had... Uh, a great monetary tool that had all the properties we needed, you know, what it lacked in portability, we made up for in the, the paper and electronic versions and all as well. So problem solved. Why are we even sitting here talking about Bitcoin today, right? What's the big deal? <laughs> well, as it will probably not surprise anyone to hear, <laughs> human beings are sinful fallen creatures mm -hmm. and as it turns out humans cannot be trusted to guardian physical money um and not the, like the incentive to issue more banknotes than your reserves could justify is simply too great mm -hmm. e even if you're an honest banker Right. And many were. There were many of these operations that persisted for a long time and they 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 operated honestly. But even if you are, you've put so much purchasing power in one place, it becomes a honeypot for governments, right? If a government is short on revenue or needs to raise money quickly to go to war, it's like, okay, let's make a list of the ways we can raise money. Well, highest on the list is like, just go to the bank and take it, right? Or go to the bank and force them to give you a cheap loan. Um, guns can be very convincing. So it's kind of this weird situation where because of a technical flaw of gold, we centralize its custody into one place. And then by centralizing its custody into one place, um, you know, another answer to the question, what is money is useful here? One that many people are familiar with, money is power, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's the ability, it, it gives you this strange ability to kind of command the actions of others, right? People will do things for you for money. So when you put all that power into one place, you get a close approximation of absolute power, right? You can just, right. if you can just take over that bank, and you have a lot of power to move people and move the world and wage war and do all these other things. And as Lord Acton infamous, infamously said, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So it's not surprising to me that the institution charged with the safeguarding of that power has become so corrupt over time. And today, you know, it is the central bank, effectively. The central bank is that primary custodian of gold. Um, central banks globally control about 20 to 25% of the gold supply. And they are they are in cahoots, to say the least, with government. And um, they have 
forcibly given themselves the exclusive privilege to counterfeit currency that other people are forced to use uh, and not allowed to counterfeit. And um, yeah, I think it's, I always find this point so interesting. There's like, it's a technical flaw of gold that got us into the situation. Mm -hmm. For instance, if gold were somehow perfectly portable, right? If it were just information or if gold were dematerialized, then all of the sudden the portability problem would have been resolved, right? You could move gold over a telegraph or a telephone wire, right? You wouldn't need to put it into a currency form to move it. It would just be naturally portable. It would also be trivial to take self-custody of it because you could, it's just information, right? You can just write it down. You can memorize it. You can put it in a computer, whatever it may be. Um, but because gold is physical, we had this need, this economic advantage to be gained by centralizing its custody. And that's what led to the central bank ultimately becoming the dominant institution in the world. Yeah. So... Um, I'll pause there. I mean, hopefully that gives kind of a, a, a sweeping glimpse of like how gold becomes money, but how its shortcomings lead to currency. And I guess the only the last piece I would add there is um, humans inevitably overissue the, the, the bank notes, right? So today, for instance, we have the gold market, the paper gold markets worldwide are 100x larger than the physical gold markets. So there's a hundred times more claims on gold circulating in the world than there than there is actual gold in the world. So that's a good example of that. Dang. And that induced these banks to become what was called fractional reserve banks. So rather than holding 100% of their customer liabilities, such that if customers wanted to come and get their gold, they would have the gold available. They would only keep half or a quarter or 10% or 5% of the assets necessary to cover their liabilities. Um, and eventually they go all the way to 0%. And that's what a fiat currency is. It's something that's been de-pegged from gold. Um, it's a violated contract. If you consider that the, the dollar bill or the bank note was a contract for gold, right? You could take it to the bank and redeem it. Well, in 1971, Nixon revoked that contract uh, unilaterally and with finality and that's what we're dealing with right we have uh, a global cartel of currency counterfeiters called central banks that effectively own government and run the world um, so it's little wonder to me that there is so much fraud and distress in the world considering that the dominant institution in the world is the biggest scam in human history because we've never had a global coordinated debasement of currencies everywhere worldwide at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had many hyperinflations. We've had many currency failures, but they've always been kind of somewhat isolated, you know? Yeah. Um, the one that's occurring today is just, it's global. It's everywhere. And um, so that's, that's very unique. Uh, I would back up a little bit from 1971 to 1944, which was the conclusion of world war II. Um you know, we basically, quote unquote, the United States, quote unquote, won the war. Uh, the more accurate description, in my opinion, is we entered the war late. We uh, 
you know, Russia lost 30 million people, I think, fighting the Germans in World War II. Mm. We came into the war late. We lost in the neighborhood of one to two million. You have to check me on those numbers. I'm not exactly sure, but we had a lot less casualties because we came into the war late. Our opponent was was war wearied. You know, Germany had similar losses. And so we came in uh, when it was advantageous to us and we won, right? We, well, won. We concluded the war and declared ourselves victorious. And the first thing we did was hold the Bretton Woods Conference. And the purpose of that conference was to rewrite the global banking and economic order. And it was written as follows. It was written in a way that the U.S. dollar would be the global reserve currency. It would be pegged to gold. All the other currencies in the world would then be pegged to the U.S. dollar. So other nations could redeem their currencies for U.S. dollars and then could redeem those U.S. dollars for gold. This gave the United States what the French would later call the exorbitant privilege to be able to print money, right? We could just produce new units of dollars, ship them overseas, and those nations would send us goods and services in return. So we could produce something with no work, right? Literally, they're just actually physically printing cash, or what's more often the case is you're just changing entries on a database. You're just adding zeros to the dollar database. Yeah. And you're sending those dollars to countries that in exchange send you goods and services that require actual work, right? So there's this asymmetry. That's why they called it the exorbitant privilege that we could send them these green sheets of paper. They would send us hard, uh, hard earned or hard uh, created, let's say, like to, mm-hmm. there was work necessary to create them. Uh, they would send us these goods and services. So, but that system sort of worked because dollars were redeemable for gold. So the dollars we were sending these countries, if at any time they thought we were running that scam, right? Where we're over-issuing the dollars relative to how much gold we have in reserve. If we're running a fractional reserve, as we described earlier, mm. they could call that bluff. They could say, you know what? I think you've printed too many dollars, Uncle Sam. Here's your dollars back. I would like the gold, please. Yeah. And so from 1944 to the mid-1960s, this worked. Um, but sure enough, you know, I think the supply of dollars had expanded a lot in that time. I want to say like four or five X in that kind of 30, a 20 year span. Mm. And then nations started to call our bluff because the supply of dollars had expanded so quickly. So England requested a uh, gold redemption, right? They sent us a bunch of dollars and they were, they redeemed gold. Mm-hmm. France followed suit and did the same thing and then i think this was in 19 it was either 69 or 70 germany requested to redeem some of their dollars for gold and of course germany is uh, an industrial powerhouse always has been um they had accumulated a significant amount of dollars but it was decided at this point that that was kind of like one step too far you know that um 
we were tired of depleting our gold reserves in the US. So that was the impetus for at that time, President Richard Nixon to come on television and execute the now infamous Nixon shock, where he suddenly announced that we were suspending the dollar redeemability for gold. He said it would be a temporary measure. He blamed it on trade imbalances and greedy capitalists, as state bureaucrats always do. It's always the market's fault. It's never the state's fault. And sure enough, here we sit 51 years, 52 years later uh, into this temporary, quote unquote, temporary measure. Mm. And um, the entire world still exists on a fiat currency standard. And it might all sound kind of, you know, financial and boring, but if you consider that once you break it was the redeemability of dollars for gold that keeps the system honest. Because like I said, other nations could call the bluff, right? They could say, I don't, you know, you've issued too many dollars, give me the gold instead. Once you take away that option, the honesty from the system is gone. There's no more, there's no more check. There's no more um, anchor to economic reality. What you've done at that point is effectively give the United States via the Federal Reserve an unlimited capacity to counterfeit currency with no check. No one can call the bluff. No one can stop them. No one can slow them down. Um, and indeed, just look at the chart of USM2 since 1971. It's been a long parabola that's gotten extremely aggressive in the past few years. And um, what does this mean? This means that unlike every other business in the world, that if it's not profitable, it's not a going concern. If, if a business is not profitable, it goes out of business, right? The capital gets reallocated to higher and better uses. The one legal exception to this is the state, is government, because they can just money to paper over their losses and there's no consequences the consequences are all externalized onto people in society right you print new money you get to spend the money when it's at maximal value as that money goes into wide circulation the prices of goods and services go up this is price inflation and that is the tax being paid by productive market actors for the counterfeiting of currency that occurred inside of the central bank and inside of the state. So it's this means of shadow taxation, shadow theft. Um, and it's one that directly contributes to bureaucratic overgrowth. Um, and, you know, as far as I can tell, it's one of the primary reasons we have such a bloated and inefficient government bureaucracy in the United States and all over the world. And um, it's dishonest. It's, it's used to fund war. Um, there is a very strong argument to be made that the scale, scope, and severity of both World War I and World War II would not have been possible without fiat currency. 
typically when a, a government goes to war, it has to wage, it has to finance that war from its own war chest, its own balance sheet, right? Whatever money or assets it has, that's what it can use to fund the war. But if it can print currency out of thin air and force other people to use that currency at the tip of a gun, it can now pilfer the entire savings of the population, of the society. So instead of waging war from just their own balance sheet, they can wage the wage war from the balance sheets of all market actors using the yeah. currency. And indeed, that's what Germany did, right? This is in um, the Weimar hyperinflation, right? That they basically hyperinflated the currency, both waging war and trying to pay war reparations after the war. And it was from the ashes of that hyperinflation that Hitler rose to power. So it's this very dark kind of insidious history. And it all starts with the original fraud of, of fractional reserve banking and fiat currency. So, yeah. And um, how do you, um, you know, we, we were all participants in this, in this system and, mm -hmm. you know, like you, when you read the creature of Jekyll Island and your relatives, when you gave them the book, um, it's like, great that we know this, but what, what choice do we have? Um, and so it's kind of like, I think the, the Creature from Jekyll Island was published in like the 90s or the 80s. Like it's, it's been, the information yeah, the has been right. out there for a long time. Um, but you kind of just go, well, you know, what can I do about it? So, um, you know, I've just got to make the best of it and I've got to make my life within this system. But mm. what um, consequence do you think that that has had on shaping society, shaping the way that we operate, shaping the way that we, you know, I can definitely see the way that it, fiat currency has, and this dishonesty has shaped the way that we view wealth collectively. Mm. Um, you know, how how do you think that has impacted? Or do you think it's had an impact? Well, it's an, it's an open question. Um, mm. There's a saying we have in Bitcoin circles, fix the money, fix the world. Mm -hmm. And so we don't know to what extent the corruption of money contributes to the corruption of broader society. Yeah. But if you consider that money is like the lifeblood of the market economy, right? It's one half of every transaction. As I said way earlier, where my money went, my mind followed. It has this very interesting relationship with the human mind. You know, it's it's some something like literacy or numeracy in that we think through money, right? If you imagine like a pair of glasses, if you're wearing glasses, you don't really see the glasses. You're just looking, you're looking through the glasses. They're augmenting your perception of the world. And that's what money is doing for us when we use a pricing system, right? We think in terms of US dollars. So mm -hmm. this illusion, I call this a cognitive optical illusion, because when you print new units of currency, you print new dollars. If I own assets, right? If I own a house and I own stocks, what you end up with is more dollars chasing the same amount of houses or stocks or whatever the asset is. So on paper, my nominal wealth, quote unquote wealth is going up, right? My brokerage statement, I have more dollars this month than I did last month. My house is worth more this month than it was last month. My, Whatever the thing is, 
And so people get like uh, duped into this illusion of rising wealth from nothing, right? Mm -hmm. Like things, prices just go up and I have more dollars and that's great. But what's actually happening is that each unit, each dollar is having its purchasing power diminished. Yeah. So it's, it's, you're, it's a deception, right? It's a lie. And although it might look like things are getting better, they're actually getting worse. Yeah. And those gains tend to flow to the top because rich people own assets. Yeah. You know, the middle class lives more closer to paycheck to paycheck and the lower class lives absolutely paycheck to paycheck. Mm. And so this tax, this inflation tax, it's regressive. It actually disproportionately affects the poor, those living on fixed income and the middle class, mm. and it benefits the rich. So over time, what you get is this evisceration of the middle class. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Yeah. And when you when you debase the middle class that way, you know, to 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 enough of an extent, it causes society to collapse. Mm -hmm. And you know, this is not a new story, right? This this is what happened in ancient Rome. They debased the coinage as the political protocol or the, the monetary protocols became compromised, as middle class started to to be destroyed, the political protocols began to fail. The city went into disarray and the city was invaded and conquered. Like it's it, these, this, this has happened time and time again. Um, if you, it's almost like a, a guaranteed way to induce a mass psychosis in a society is like just hyperinflate the currency. If you hyperinflate the currency and money stops working, I mean, you don't, you could just think about this for yourself, right? Like if money did, stopped working right now, what options would you have left, right? Like you might know a few people that you trust, but how are you going to do anything with strangers? How are you going to participate, you know, order things through a supply chain or buy food or buy a ride or buy a hotel night? Like if the money doesn't work, what have you got? You've got like whatever assets you have and maybe a trusted few people that you can work with. But the other 8 billion of us are now strangers to you, you know, in a very in an economic sense. So it's this weird, and if that's the case of hyperinflation, then what makes us think that a little bit of inflation is good or necessary? It's just a step along that road to mass psychosis. And so I think, I think there's a feedback that occurs between human cognition and economic calculation. As we print money and derange economic calculation, one of the ways the economy has been described is as a psychological engine, where mm -hmm. you could say that economics is like public psychology. When, you, when you're counterfeiting currency, you're, you're deranging prices. So that calculation, the economic calculation that tends to occur in that, that engine of the economy cannot occur. It doesn't work. It's like putting bad data into a computer. It's, it causes it to frazzle and fry. And so when you fry that collective psychology, it also seems to fry us individually, right? Like when you study the history of hyperinflations, people tend to develop an urge to gamble. There tend to be more scams. There's more theft. There's more violence. And again, when you get to the point of hyperinflation, like 
you know, in Venezuela, they've been going through it recently. Paper cash clogs the gutters. Yeah. People are eating dogs and cats. People are in government informants on one another. It's like a total dystopian shit show. Yeah. All really because broke. the money broke. Yeah. And also in this kind of environment where the um, money is being debased and your purchasing power is being diminished. You know, we can we can even see this in sort of American society, especially Western society. There's this just this drive to spend. You know, mm. there's this encouragement. It's this even when um, like the way that wealth is presented in the media, it's this very sort of like celebrity orientated, um, you know, kind of view of wealth. And I wouldn't describe that as wealth. I would see that as like. I would say it's like this momentary expression of excess beyond your your immediate needs, um, mm. but it's not really of building wealth. It's just how much more stuff can I buy? And I think you get that in this um, environment where um, you know your money is like a melting ice cube in your hand, and uh -huh. it's like you know mm. I've got to get more stuff. And, That's right. Uh, so I, I think we're see we're seeing that for sure. I find it really interesting the way you talk about free market capitalism. And before we go into Bitcoin, can we just talk quickly about your definition of um, the difference between Soviet communism, American capitalism, and true free market capitalism? Yeah, I, this is a very big topic, but I'll try to give some useful definitions here. Um, so I like Hoppe's definition, actually. He defines socialism as an institution an institutionalized policy of aggression against private property so this is when the collective has the rights to the fruit of fruits of your labor to a greater or lesser extent mm -hmm. capitalism he defines as an institutionalized policy of respect for private property and contract so Everyone keeps what they earn and they are free to trade it with other people and engage in consensual contracts with one another. Um, in a world of pure, so, so that's those definitions. And then I guess the other definition that's important here is taxation. Uh, we've been conditioned to think taxation is just like a natural, normal, inevitable, necessary part of the world, right? I mean, to the point where we have the old adage, right? The two certainties in life, death and taxes. What taxation actually is, and we talked about inflation earlier, inflation is a form of taxation, uh, a less obvious form. It's easier to hide and whatnot but there's also just direct taxation where the state says pay me this much money or go to jail that is theft that is theft it is very obvious if you don't have the ability to refuse a transaction and just say no right and those terms don't work for me i'm going to go elsewhere and at the point of a gun you're not allowed to refuse or and when I say point of a gun, I mean coercion, right? This could be legal proceedings, uh, th physical threats, or actual point of a gun, which tax collectors have used many, many, many times. Um, that is theft, pure and simple. You, if you don't have the right to say no 
to refuse a transaction, then you're being robbed because you you don't have the freedom to disengage. So inflation is a form of taxation. Taxation is theft. So what is theft? It is aggression against private property, right? If private property is your relationship with the things of value that you have justly created or acquired, you've either built the thing from hand or you've earned it or you've bought it with money that you've earned or you traded to obtain it, right? Through mutual consensual exchange. Um, taxation is aggression against that. Taxation is the stealing of that to whatever percentage your tax rate is. So when we say the U.S. is a free market capitalist society, well, you just have to ask yourself, does the U.S. impose taxation on its citizens? The answer is yes. So therefore, they are not a free market capitalist society. And the extent to which they impose taxation is the extent to which they are not a free market capitalist society. Um, Further to that, the existence of a central bank invalidates a society as free market capitalist. Uh, a central bank is an anti-capitalist institution because it preys on the private property of its citizens through currency counterfeiting. Mm. Um, you cannot, it, it does not square, right? Again, another instance of an inability to do something, right? If I try to start a business that's competitive to the US dollar, then at the point of a gun, they will shut me down. Why is that? If the US dollar is so great and it's just a business, why can't I start a business to compete? Because it's not capitalism, it's socialism, right? The state gives itself the exclusive authority to counterfeit currency and steal from people. Mm -hmm. And if people had an option to use a money that was not counterfeitable or not being counterfeited, they would choose to do that because it's in their self-interest. So I guess those are some key points on that. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a longer discussion about how Bitcoin hopefully ushers us into a world that's more, uh, that better exemplifies true free market capitalism, just by giving people recourse to a form of wealth that cannot be easily stolen, cannot be easily taxed cannot be inflated at all, right? Bitcoin's a 21 million hard cap, so it's it's immune to unexpected supply inflation. And um, if you don't like the state you're in, Bitcoin gives you this hyper-portable form of capital to take your wealth and leave. So um, the the promise of Bitcoin is that it would lead us to a world that is much more uh, that looks much more free market capitalist. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because in our society, capitalism has almost been demonized. Like you mentioned before, the state often blames greedy capitalists for all yeah. of the wrongs in the world. Um, and sort of socialism has sort of been pushed to the forefront as the more noble way of doing things. Um, and I've often heard you talk in your, um, in your podcasts about your Christian walk and actually how going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole has even deepened that connection to Christ and to Christianity and the teachings of Christianity. And so I just find it interesting because, 
you know, Christ is very clear about, Jesus is very clear about how, you know, to help the widows and the orphans, to uplift the, the poor and downtrodden. So in this world of free market capitalism, where do those sections of society fit into that model? Well, they benefit. Um, the thing about free market capitalism is that when all exchange is mutually consensual, that means that each party to every transaction, you have to really focus on the nature of consent as a very important word. Each party to a consensual transaction will only consummate the trade if they both expect to benefit. Mm -hmm. Right. And now this is clearly subjective, right? But it basically means when you and I sit down to trade something, you want what I have more than I want what I have and vice versa. And once we reach those terms, we both consensually trade and we both leave the trade better off. And now this is a psychological phenomenon, but it's important, right? That's how people create value for themselves. And, you know, I can't overemphasize the importance of this word. And some people don't like it when I say this, but I think it's important. The difference between employment and slavery is consent. The difference between sex and rape is consent. The difference between a transaction and taxation is consent. You, if you introduce non-consensual exchange or unilateral exchange, right, where one person tells another person under the threat of coercion or violence that you're going to give me the thing that I want or else, when those two parties leave the exchange, one is better off. And one is worse off, obviously. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, coercion would not need to be employed. So consent is the key to mutual satisfaction. Mm. And it's the only way that it can occur. It's the only, and there's not a count, there's not even a counter argument to this. It's it's rationally deduced, right? This isn't like an empirical thing. Studies show that you need consent to be better off. It's like, no, you can't even form a counter argument to it because it doesn't yeah. make any logical sense. Yeah. So um I'm sorry, the original question I got I got off on the nature of consent. What was the original question? Um the original question is where do um sections of society like the widows Oh uh, yes. Okay, okay. okay. So the point I wanted to make there is that universalizing consensual exchange mm. is the way we optimize total wealth creation. So that's how we increase wealth per capita. Mm -hmm. This is the proverbial tide that rises all ships. Okay. So you don't even have to participate in the market economy to benefit from the prices, from the innovation and the prices uh, decreases that occur. Mm -hmm. Right? So the, what's an example? The refrigerator. What a miracle of modern innovation that we can put food into this thing and keep it stable for weeks or months on end. Go back 200 years. Actually, I'm not exactly sure when the refrigerator was invented, but go back however many years before it was invented. That was It was a nightmare, right? Like food storage was such a pain. We, we, mm. we had, it was hard. It was very difficult. It was a constant drudgery we had to deal with. People today, like, you know, at least in most parts of the world, many parts of the world, in the developed world at least, have refrigerators. They didn't 
have to, that wealth accrues to them as like an inheritance from the market process uh, discovering this useful technology. It's not something they have to reinvent or they have to discover for themselves. It's it's something they inherit. And so, and then the other side of that is as people become smarter at providing goods and services, prices in a free market will naturally decline so that you get to live a higher quality life at a lower cost. If you just let, leave people to exchange with one another consensually mm -hmm. and eliminate coercion as much as possible. In fact, that is the only purpose of government. The only purpose. It is to preserve life, liberty, and property such that the market process can function uh, without being inhibited. Anywhere there is coercion or violence, well, the government exists conceptually, philosophically, to, to rectify that and to prevent that. Um, and anything government does beyond the scope of that is, is corrupt and, and non-purposeful. So people that are lower down the economic hierarchy, right? there's always going to be wealth inequality. This is an ineradicable part of nature. People are of varied skills, talents, experience, circumstances, luck, etc. But when we increase aggregate wealth creation, the entire economic hierarchy rises, right? We get refrigerators, we get airplanes, we get air conditioners, prices come down, right? So I have to work less hours to make ends meet. Now, this, this may sound like a world that doesn't exist because it doesn't exist, because the central bank counterfeits currency and causes prices to go up, making the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. But if we could remove the central bank and we could remove the apparatus of taxation, this is the world we would inhabit. So it is the optimal world for both the rich and the poor alike. Um, in terms of, when I say optimal, if our metric is human flourishing, if our mm -hmm. metric is our capacity to solve as many problems and feed as many mouths and house as many people as possible, then pure free market capitalism, free from taxation and inflation, is the optimal solution. Yeah, and it's interesting, by introducing scarcity back into the money supply, you're reducing scarcity, you know, throughout, yes, throughout yes, the earth. Yes. So that's, you know, it's really fascinating. Another, another way that's fascinating, because money often has this weird counterintuitive thing to it. <laughs> free money, right, Just where we just print money out of thin air requires an unfree population. You have to have the coercion of a legal monopoly in order to make, in order to be able to print money out of thin air. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it wouldn't work, right? If, it, if we were left to the free market, we would have a gold standard or a Bitcoin standard perhaps today. Right. But when an unfree market where people are coerced, you get this free market, free money, you know, everyone gets a check, everyone gets a bailout. There's zombie mm -hmm. companies. Like it's, it's, did you ever watch the game show Whose Line Is It Anyways? Yeah. Fiat currency is is like that in the sense that the points don't matter, right? You just print the money and it just doesn't matter over time. Um anyways, it's to your earlier question, like how bad is this? How corruptive is it to us? Mm. Who knows? But there are many dimensions along which it seems to be pathological for humanity. Yeah. Absolutely. We, I, I think we're really seeing that um, that begin to manifest in society, 
you know, pretty evidently in recent years and more recent years. But um, trust because and even mentioned Michael Saylor because he said something really interesting um, around the time of FTX collapse. And mm. he said that, you know, the reality is that the trust is always going to be broken time and time again. Because mm -hmm. actually, this burden of trust is it in itself corrupts, right? And so yes. it's always going to be broken. And so now we actually have the technology that we can remove that burden of trust from human beings. Like it's too That's much right. for human beings to bear. And we now have the technology to be able to remove that from human beings. And um, so let's talk about Bitcoin and let's talk about the fundamentals of Bitcoin. You know, you've described Bitcoin as the most superior monetary technology that it has ever existed. So what is Bitcoin? Can you explain the overall concept of Bitcoin to someone who's not familiar with it? If I just go back to the framing of the properties of money we mentioned earlier, people seek money that is divisible, durable, recognizable, portable, scarce. What is Bitcoin? It's money that is infinitely divisible, infinitely durable, infinitely recognizable, infinitely portable, and infinitely scarce. What do I mean by that? Each Bitcoin can be divided, divided into 100 million subunits called Satoshis. If ever there came a time where Bitcoin were so precious that one Satoshi or one 100 million subunits called Satoshis was inadequate to support an economy. Say if a cup of coffee cost half of a Satoshi. Bitcoin has the capacity to do a what's called a soft fork. It's a backwards compatible software update to increase that divisibility. So it could go from 100 million subunits to a billion to 10 billion to 100 billion. It can go as it can be as divisible as it needs to be. So it's infinitely divisible, right? You can transact at every scale forever, right? The economy can get as sophisticated as it needs to. Bitcoin um, will adapt to satisfy it. Bitcoin is infinitely durable. And you might wonder, well, if Bitcoin is just this like computer code and it's just this idea, how is that infinitely durable? And the example I like to cite here is the Bible. Mm-hmm. You can destroy or burn as many physical copies of the Bible as you as you want, right? You could probably destroy every Bible on earth if you could somehow find a way to do it. And it still would not end the Bible as an idea, right? Mm -hmm. The Bible is this idea stored in distributive cognition. It's everywhere and nowhere. People have memorized it. People have... People have it on the computer, right? It's on the internet. It's it's this information that's stored in a distributed way. So it's effectively immortal, right? It's an immortal idea, or it's at least going to last as long as humanity. Uh, the circumstances in which the Bible went away are unthinkable. I mean, I, I can't really imagine a circumstance where that would be the case. And Bitcoin is the same, really. It's just a copy of it is maintained everywhere, right? Every node, every mining mining node maintains a full copy of Bitcoin, a ledger of all of its transactions, um, everything, 
it is replicated, right? It's infinitely replicated everywhere. So you would have to destroy every single one of those replications to destroy Bitcoin. Mm. Um, and it's just not feasible. So that makes Bitcoin infinitely durable. Um, Bitcoin is just information. It's just code. Um, you, you can move information at the speed of light, thanks to telecommunications. Therefore, it's infinitely portable, right? You can't move something faster than the speed of light, and you can move Bitcoin at the speed of light. So it's perfected that monetary property. Uh, Bitcoin's also perfectly recognizable, meaning that you can't counterfeit it. Um, if you send me Bitcoin and I'm running a full node, I can verify that the Bitcoin you sent me is Bitcoin. You can't trick me. There's no way, like we used to need the techniques to verify gold or, you know, again, drop the coin from a certain height to hear how it sounds. You don't need any of these rules of thumb with Bitcoin. You verify, you, you can run the software that verifies it is what it says it is. And in addition to that, you get this other very unique capability and that you can audit the total supply. You can verify that there's only 21 million possible, right? You can, mm -hmm. and there's zero trust. As you just said, the trust always collapses. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin is 0% trust, 100% verification. So you don't need to trust anyone. You just verify it for yourself. So it's effectively perfected this monetary property of recognizability. And finally, uh, Bitcoin is perfectly scarce. There's a fixed supply of 21 million. There will never be any more. It's the first fixed supply asset in human history. Um, as we mentioned earlier about gold, gold was the most relatively scarce commodity we had, meaning that no matter how much time, energy or effort was allocated towards its production, its supply increased the most slowly. So it had the greatest relative scarcity of any commodity, and that's why it became money. Well, Bitcoin is the first instance, the only instance I think that can be invented, of which I argue in my piece, the number zero on Bitcoin, it's the discovery of absolute scarcity. Like it's a, it's a, it's the monetary property taken to its final conclusion. Um, and again, that's not even true for gold. If we could all like, if I could flip a switch and say, everybody go mine gold. Now we could increase the supply of gold much more rapidly. Hmm. If you did the same thing to Bitcoin, nothing would change. Bitcoin would be mined on the same schedule because it adapts to how many, how hard humans pursue its production. So that's why I say that. That's why I say Bitcoin is the most momentous monetary mon innovation in human history, because it's perfected all the properties of money, all the services that humans have always sought from good money across all of history have now reached their maximum in one asset called Bitcoin. So um, it's a lot to take in, right? We spend hundreds of hours talking about this on the show. Mm -hmm. uh, we're releasing episode 300 this week, I think. And um, I, I implore you to study Bitcoin, right? I'm not here to sell you Bitcoin. I don't care if you buy it. I'm totally agnostic. I'm deeply <laughs> fascinated by it, as are millions of others. But I do encourage you to study it because even if you decide you don't like it, you're guaranteed to learn a lot about the nature of money, the nature of economics, the nature of human psychology. 
Um, and it's it's a useful useful venture. Right. And just to close, where you know, where do you see us? Where are we now? And where do you see us in the next ten years? Because um, you know, there's a lot happening now. I I don't personally. You may disagree with this, but I don't personally see. Um, Bitcoin as the contender at the moment for the you know the next global reserve the global reserve currency at this point in time I don't see it as a direct competitor for the um, to the dollar you know I can see that we we're gradually building these rails of an alternate system and rather than you know Bitcoin necessarily quote unquote attacking the dollar. It's more, you know, by nature, by design, fiat currency is attacking and, you know, destroying itself. And, um, you know, so I, I wonder where we, where you see Bitcoin going in the next 10 years. I have a public prediction that I, I shared on Robert Kiyosaki's podcast, I think two years ago at this point. And I think the U.S. dollar will be hyperinflated to worthlessness by the year 2035, by the end of the year 2035. And um, that's a little bit more than 10 years from now. But at that point, when the dollar is worth zero, that means Bitcoin has outcompeted all the money in the world and has become the most valuable monetary asset in the world. Um so I think that's what we're going through. It's kind of this, it's darkest before the dawn period that mm -hmm. the state, which has been, you know, the nation state in particular, which has been the dominant institution since the collapse of the medieval church 500 some odd years ago, is going through its own technological disruption, right? And yeah. In the same way the Gutenberg printing press disrupted the medieval church and its monopoly on knowledge and led to its decline um, as the dominant institution, opening the way for the rise of the nation state. I think the nation state is now having its Gutenberg moment and it's undergoing a disruption by Bitcoin and digital technologies more generally, right? It's, yeah. it's taking power away from the state. People can, you know, email even, right? Like the ability to communicate without postal mail, for instance, or other government monopolized uh, institutions that gives people more freedom, more power, more autonomy. Um, and Bitcoin, it is that sound store of value that governments need to make ownership of a sound store of value illegal to make the welfare warfare state work. Because mm -hmm. if people have access to something that can hold purchasing power across time, well, that's really hard for governments to tax and impossible for them to inflate. So that's why it's always been made illegal. Mm -hmm. And that's why gold, the price of gold's always been manipulated. But with Bitcoin, we have this incorruptible monetary instrument. And I think all of the monetary premium of the world is going to collapse into that black hole. And... Mm -hmm. There's a uh, quite the bright orange future on the other side of this transition, but the transition itself is fraught with uncertainty. And 
the best advice I could give to anyone living through this, I mean, I already mentioned study Bitcoin. I think that's very important. Right. Uh, but more generally, I would say just make yourself expensive to tyrannize. You know, the state is running cost benefit calculations and who it takes advantage of. The harder of a target you are, the less likely they are to fuck with you. So um, in times of great uncertainty, the right strategy is optionality. So, yeah, you know, liquidity, passport optionality, uh, being as food and energy independent as possible, training yourself, developing yourself, um, you know, local community, private business networks, all of these things just can help you survive and hopefully thrive throughout whatever um, uncertainty manifests in this this great transition yeah. of the decline of the nation state. And do you think it's the decline of, I, I mean, I'm careful to ask you this, I, you know, please hear my heart in this. I don't mean to be insulting at all. You know, you're obviously American, you live in America. But I, you know, I saw a meme the other day and it sort of said, what a time to be alive. It's like the fall of Rome, but with Wi-Fi. And so I, you know, as someone who doesn't live in America, that's definitely something that I kind of observe from the outside. It sort of feels, you know, there's there's a lot of, you know, um, headlines and things like that saying the dollar is under, the under attack, the dollar is dead. But I actually kind of see that these these moves from like the BRICS nations, from China, from India, are more about them protecting and promoting their own interests rather than directly attacking the dollar or attacking America. Um, but it, when I saw, you know, when I see those memes and I sort of observe what is going on in America, it, it's you, you sort of do question, is this what I'm witnessing? Am I witnessing the implosion of an empire here? But I think what you're sort of saying is that we're actually going through um, a questioning and a challenging of the definition of the nation state in general. Yeah, so it's, it's the transition of an epoch or an age. So if, if we were standing together during the agricultural age on a farm somewhere and a time traveler came back and encountered us and said, you know what? You guys are about to move into the industrial age and there's going to be these giant structures of glass and steel and flying machines and uh, calculating machines that talk to each other and telecommunications. Like we wouldn't understand a word that was coming out of that guy's mouth. We would not literally glass. like what's glass, what's steel, what's telecommunications. What's, like the technological paradigm is so significantly different than what we're accustomed to that we don't even have the language to decipher uh, what that time traveler is telling us. And so what I think is happening is we're moving from the industrial age into mm -hmm. the digital age. Mm -hmm. And we think we're already deep in it, right? I don't think so. I think it's just getting warmed up and things are about to get a lot weirder. Yeah. You know, we've got AI on the horizon. We've got the collapse of the nation state. Um, we've got 3D printed weapons. We've got brain computer interfaces we've got genetic modification we've got nanotechnology we've got drones like things are going to be very bizarre in the next 50 to 100 years 
And I can't tell you what it's going to look like because I don't think any of us have the language to understand where we are headed. Mm-hmm. So that's how I see it. You know, I don't, I could be wrong, of course, but um, I, I do think that it's pretty obvious that digital technology is quite impactful on most aspects of our life. And I don't think uh, we're very far along in that adoption curve of digital technology. So, um, so in, in that's closing how I would this, put that. Yeah, in closing this off, I think, um, you know, something that you said on Lex Friedman podcast, um, and it, it sort of ties into, you know, what you've just said about really, we don't know what this digital age really holds. And we don't really have the capacity to understand what it really looks like. Um, and so, you know, in an interview you did with Lex Fridman, you said that to understand Bitcoin, we really must shift from this rational based realism towards value based philosophy. And we must view reality through the lens of value and diffuse this materialist view of reality. And mm. that is like such an Aquarian age, you know, statement. <laughs> and, I am an Aquarian. Um, you are an Aquarian? Okay, that makes am, so yeah, much sense. <laughs> uh, that makes a lot of sense. And so I really sort of think that it it's, a, you know, about adopting that Aquarian thinking, that ability to hold um, the unknown with possibility at the same time and um, have have both be true. What we've known, that his, how history repeats and re- continues to repeat itself, but also be open to the fact that there is a lot of unknown and that also... That unknown doesn't necessarily need to be this dystopian, scary, um, scary reality. You know, on the other side of this, it could be um, a lot better. And, um, you know, in saying that, is there is there one, one thought that you really want to leave people with, that you really want them to know about anything we've discussed today? Well, I mean, I would just challenge anyone to envision their ideal future either for themselves or for their kids or for their friends or for for humanity and imagine any situation where human freedom is not an indispensable component of that ideal vision right? We have to be free to choose. There is no one that can coerce you into an optimal human condition. It's just, it's a self-negating proposition, right? If mm-hmm. coercion exists, then it's it's negating the very idealism that you're envisioning. And look, I'm, I'm not a fool. I don't think we can necessarily get to a utopian place where there's zero coercion. Mm-hmm. But there's definitely an ideal there to work toward. And it seems to me like the best, the most effective strides we can take toward that ideal is to make coercion and violence more risky and more expensive, mm-hmm. uh, more difficult to perpetrate. And we've made significant strides 
toward this end, right? The rule of law, the the constitution, democracy, you know, there's all a lot of different attempts at different things to try and make um, oppression and coercion and violence just less effective. And I really think that's what Bitcoin is, right? It just, it's hard, it's impossible to inflate and it's hard to steal. So by virtue of that alone, it makes coercion, compulsion, and violence less profitable and therefore makes the world a better place. So it's it just comes down to human freedom for me. So like I said earlier, even Bitcoin, as great as it is, is just a means to an end. And that end, in my mind, in my heart, is human freedom. And that is an indispensable component to human flourishing. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me, Robert. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed this episode and you got some things to take away from our amazing guests' insight. If you did enjoy this episode, please subscribe and also leave us a review. And for more information on the Hadassah Collective, you can visit our Instagram page at Hadassah Collective. I hope you'll join me again for our next episode at the same time next week. And until then, have a wonderful week.